Coming up on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. For the sake of democracy, we need to somehow get our newspapers back to doing what their original function was, by the way, which is to mirror, to use actually the, the, the name of my own newspaper, it's to reflect all that is before it, all that is before it. You know, not just talking to a certain amount of people, but talking to the entire people. This week, I'm joined once again by one of my favourite guests on the Mario Rosenstock podcast, Larissa Nolan, journalist, sometime columnist of the year, uh, and a person who's very passionate about her opinions, uh, of which she has many. Informed, opinionated, and fascinating on so many issues, Larissa is. Last week's big discussion about the housing crisis uh, took us to all different places. This week, we talk about the current state of journalism and why it needs a major shot in the arm. Journalism is in is such a critical, central part of our daily lives, our society and how it runs. But Larissa believes it is in crisis and urgently needs to be saved. And I remember seeing the bags go by and going, oh God, there's another bag of mail. Jesus, I'm going to be, I'm going to be fired. And he said, no, we're delighted to see the bags of mail. He said, I said, but sure, maybe most of them won't agree with me. He said, I don't care whether they agree or disagree. The point in a democracy is debate and it's different viewpoints and it's reaction. I always wonder when people say to me, I studied journalism for four years and I honestly think, what did you do for the other three years, 11 months? Because I could teach you in one month more than you would learn in the four years sitting studying how to be a journalist. It doesn't take a university degree to sift fact from fiction. Mm. He always could still be in touch with the real people and real people's concerns, real people's daily concerns, not whether or not the nuns run the National Maternity Hospital, not whether or not we have enough female professors, uh, you know, in Irish universities, but things like the cost of living crisis. My full chat with Larissa coming up very shortly, but we went rooting through the archives again this week and dug out another of our favourite comedy sketches. I've just been working out, there's so many comedy sketches on the podcast that are exclusive to this podcast. They're all in the past episodes and many of them are just all so different in nature. So we're delighted with that. Um, And I have great fun doing impressions of some of my favourite podcasters. David McWilliams in particular. Yes, Mario. Hello. David is a great man for the economic analogies and he also loves swinging. Mm, That couldn't be right. Oh, swinging from Southside boy to Northside lad (laughs) in the space of seconds on his podcast with producer John Davis. I have great fun with this. I don't know why. So here are a couple of my favourite McWilliams sketches. Ready to go, David? Ready to go, John. Turf analogies ready? Metaphors mixed and loaded. Go. Hello there. Turf wars. Scary stuff. Mm-hmm. So if we see turf as a currency, let's call it bog coin. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> Two people are carrying bog coin. Right. I call them Bogman Barry and Turf Cutting Trevor. Half a but I'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. Because you know what, John? What? You know what I think of when I think of turf? No. I think of a big plane roaring for David. In the middle of the main streets yes. in Darky Day. And a whole lot of us chislers out of our tits on Linden Village. David. Singing the fucking wolf towns David, and beating please. the bollocks out of those knackers from Vulcan. David, David. David. the fucking yard with you. David, now that's what I call a tough one. David, you're not a hard man. No, let's get on with the Davies. Sponsor read so. 
Ready to go, David? All set, John, ready. What are we doing today? Inflation as a heat wave. Ah, genius stuff. Okay, David, let's go. It's powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It's David here, podcast time, and it's boiling outside, isn't it, John? Yeah, tropic. Roasting. And you know what, John? Yeah. It reminds me of inflation. Rise. During a heat wave, Mm. air molecules rise like prices. They do. Like the air, the economy begins to overheat. Yeah. Temperatures rise and prices rise. Yeah. What can we do about overheating in general? Oh, great question. Great question, John. Great question, John. Great question, me old Sagosha. I remember the summer of 76, John Boy. Fuck's sake. Boiling our mebs off, we were. Oh. Out in the main streets of Darky. Such a prick. Me mates and myself, we'd rob a couple of rally choppers. Oh, stop it. And into town we'd bollocks. Stop it. And jump into the Grand Canal in our nip. Right, misking the voils disease and all. This Sitting is... on the sides of the banks of the Grand Canal. This is not you. And you know, neck and flagging the scrumpy jack. Shut up. Fanning ourselves, Drui. We used copies at a racing post. You never read Second, the racing post. Take me up to Monto, oh, Monto, Monto. Take me up to Monto, Lager This is a living hell. <laughs> And if you enjoyed that, make sure to hit subscribe or follow so that you don't miss any future episodes. In fact, just tell one other person about Mario Rosenstock's podcast if you can. One other person. Because we regularly have David McWilliams sketches, new ones for you here on the Mario Rosenstock podcast, as well as lots of other sketches for you to enjoy. So let's join this week's special guest, a fascinating dive into the state of modern journalism. Where has it gone wrong and why it's so important for all of us that it gets back on the right track? Larissa, last time we talked, we had a really, really interesting conversation about housing, and I'm glad we did. And one of the other things that was mentioned by and by was something you called the clerisy. And today I wanted to talk to you about um, something that's very intimately associated with your area, and that's journalism. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people would be aware that journalism is on the decline over the last 25 years. just to put that in context, even the last one of the last things I wrote or read was that half of the Irish um, uh, team of the Sunday Times are being, if you like, let go on voluntary redundancy. Um, of course, for in this spurious thing, reapp- they're having to reapply for their old jobs. How many times have I heard that before? So uh, some eminent journalists involved there. Um, and that's half the team of the Irish team just being let go. They're gone. Um, and again, this is part of the chipping away, the gradual chipping away of intelligent comment uh, and even just hands on deck workforce. Mm-hmm. Uh, journalism is in deep, deep decline. Um, where do you start with with understanding this this concept from from your point of view as a journalist, a features editor in a big um, journalism um, company. So first of all, just to, to uh, oh, the, the biggest thing that's overarching all this and the elephant in the room, I suppose, is the internet, right? So, you know, like I know everyone blames the internet and everything, but uh, the internet, of course, had uh, huge disproportionate effects on some industries as opposed to others. So, for example, music was decimated by it um, and uh, journalism, media, um, newspapers, in fact, w- 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 was decimated by it. We didn't get in quick enough. There was a situation there where 
all the content was out there for free. I think just to, to make it, to bring it into global terms, I think, for example, Australia is a good example of a place that locked down real quickly with the uh, the paywalls. And then so you had to pay for journalism through um, immediately. So you weren't getting this free content, which kind of we sort of gave, we gave ourselves away for free a little bit. And that that affected the whole thing. But then again, people are moving again. They're, they're apparently reading more than ever, but they're moving from the old traditional newspaper in the way they moved from the old traditional book. But it 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 hasn't had... If I, if I can maybe slightly change the narrative here a little bit, it hasn't had the effect on newspaper sales that I would have thought it would have had. If you'd asked me this 10 years ago, if you'd said, where will newspapers be in 10 years? I would have said gone. They'd all be gone. So actually, I'm amazed that they're not. And particularly the Sunday market is is holding steady. Um, it, I work, as, as you mentioned there, I'm the features editor of the Irish Mirror. Our paper is doing very well, um, you know, across the board. Um, so... Amazingly, I would have thought they would have been completely, I would have thought they would have gone with the dinosaurs at this stage. They're not. However, the second issue that you mentioned would be the quality of newspapers, uh, what newspapers are printing and the political um, homogeny of newspapers where we all sing from the same hymn sheet. This is what I'm particularly interested yeah, in. Yeah, talk yes. to it the seems, same people. It seems that over the last 30 years, and I would start actually primarily by by using, from my own experience, mm. uh, using Britain as an example, um, because what often what happens in in the you, in Britain we follow. Um, yes. And so you now have a situation whereby James O'Brien, the broadcaster, calls it the footballification of politics. It just red <laughs> and blue. It doesn't matter what you say. Yeah. If I say I like that. If I say I like Nazis, and I'm blue. Um, and they say they like Nazis. I go, yeah, I agree. I like Nazis, you know, because they're blue. They're, they're on my team. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's uh, If they're on my team, they're right. If they're yeah. not on my team, they're wrong. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you say. And more and more now, the newspapers have just joined a team. Mm-hmm. And so you cannot believe what these newspapers are saying. So, for example, the Daily Mail and the Express and the Sunday Express and to a lesser extent, the, the, the tel- Telegraph mm-hmm. were just... Slaves, fawns to, to Boris. It didn't matter what he said. It didn't matter what he did. It's conservatives and Boris all yeah, the way. Yeah. And you get the same saying in America, you'd have the the pro-Trump media and then the anti, the completely yeah. anti-Trump media. And like it's radically one way or the other. Yeah. It's not like... It's but not even like to the extent that when Boris other. broke the law, mm. for example, and prorogued parliament, mm-hmm. the Daily Mail published a list of judges' faces and went... They are the enemy of the state. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you literally are talking about complete madness. The, yeah. Almost the breakdown of democratic. Oh, uh, that's it. And this is the, this is the whole uh, the whole issue that I have with the whole thing is that when you don't have a functioning media doing what it's supposed to do, it completely undermines democracy. So that's where I think that we have we have landed at the moment. Is uh, you know, and that needs to, for the sake of democracy, we need to somehow get our newspapers back to doing what their original function was, by the way, uh, which is to mirror um, the, uh, to use actually the, the, the name of my own newspaper, it's to reflect all that is before it, all that is before it. You know, not just talking to a certain amount of people, but talking to the entire people. Now, what's what's happened, obviously, of course, there's marketing and techniques and people say, oh, these people buy our paper and this is the viewpoint that they want. But there are certain views, especially in Ireland. I'm going to bring this back to Ireland because I think Ireland is kind of unique uh, in, in this regard. Um, there are certain views that you won't see an alternative viewpoint uh, in any newspapers that 
everybody has agreed. All the journalists have agreed on That's this. That's right. And actually, when you go out in the real world, a good massive proportion of people don't think this thing that the media is telling them to think. Sometimes over them. 50%. Yes, actually quite often. Um, or else they're kind of, you know, some of them might be that way, but then the others are sort of, mm, you know, on the fence or they, they, they have two sides of it. But but yes, there's there, there are certain subjects in Ireland, especially over the last few years, especially since the dawn of not just in the internet, but Twitter, social media, that has created an effect on journalism, which it's, 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 there's, like, I would say that what has happened. It's put people in camps more. Yeah, but it's more like that it has abandoned the working class on behalf of maybe the interests of what the journalists themselves is their own bubble. Do you know what I mean? So we live, I think in Ireland, we very much live in, um, actually, look, it's it's across the world as well, but we live in this kind of, uh, a sort of a, there's a there's a media bubble, and I think too often, um, what what the journalists themselves who are part of this clerisy that we'll return to now in a minute, um, are writing for themselves and for the people for the interests that they have, as opposed to actually getting out in the world, getting off Twitter. And finding out what real people are thinking and real people are saying. So they're writing for their Twitter followers who are all journalists as well and their bubble. Yeah, and also um, they're they're only surrounding themselves with a certain type of people. You know, so th- this goes back to, I suppose, what is at the, the central uh, argument of my uh, my argument here is that is that there has been a status revolution in journalism in the last, we'll say going back to the 60s from all the president's men. And when it suddenly became a sort of, you know, it's worthy, but it's, you know, it's also kind of cool and swashbuckling. Um, so the, the, that kind of started a, a status revolution in, in journalism. Th- that's, it has been exalted from a trade where you got your hands dirty into a profession. So, you know, the kind of the hands dirty muckraker has become sort of has been elevated into one of these members of the clerisy, which is like the learned group of people in society who we all look up to, to, to tell us not just what to think and how to think, but also to look down upon us if we don't think the right thing. So there's too much of that going on yeah, in Irish media. Exactly. And well, that's in common with the rest of the world as well, because yeah. not only just to describe this clerisy thing, I'm getting a bit a clearer picture of it now. Not only is it, um, are these people, let's say from the professional classes, mm. they are interchangeable, often themselves interchangeable within these professions. So you find journalists becoming PR people. Yeah. You find yes. PR people becoming journalists. Yep. And then you find journalists becoming either politicians or political advisors. Yeah. Or political advisors becoming journalists. Yeah. You see this happening all the time in the cabinet. Yep. Um, very interesting journalist, Chris Johns, always describing the on Eamon Dunphy's podcast. Yes. As the Conservative Party being basically right-wing hacks, journalists and after-dinner speakers. Yeah, That's because what we are part of the establishment yeah. now. So they're not actually journalists. Yeah. They're just part of this elite part group who, who are interchangeable between these, whatever profession you're having yourself. Yeah. Could be a lawyer. Yeah. PR, politics, political handler mm-hmm. and journalist. Yeah, they or, big, or consultant, big business consultant, advisor. And they move mm-hmm. and lobbyist. Yeah, so I always say the three pillars of propaganda is big business. So you have big tech or big pharmacy or whatever you want. And then you have uh, the politics and then you have the media. So what happens is that they've all become... The, the establishment and again as you say 
interchangeable. Um, but like that is the that is the actual problem is that we now see ourselves on, uh, not you know journalism didn't start this way. I think this is this is where I want to go with this actually. Is like if you look at say Joseph Pulitzer, probably the most mentioned journalist that you ever hear from the great and the good. Joseph Pulitzer was actually homeless and jobless. And he started off with absolutely nothing. And the reason why he started newspapers, the penny press, as as, mm. as he called it, was because actually back then um, in the 19th century, I think he was late 1880s, um, newspapers could only be bought by the elite. So they were actually on a form of sort of subscription. You paid uh, the equivalent of a month's wages mm. in order to get the newspapers. And he democratised it. So he totally democratised it. He brought, he was like, hang on a minute, there's loads of poor. We'll sell them for really cheap we'll sell them uh, you know the penny press we'll make loads of money and you know he was I remember reading about him and he was saying actually great book and I'm always mentioning books on, on, on your podcast but there's a book called Bad News how woke media is undermining democracy uh, by Batia Unger Sargon. <laughs> so that's a bit, bit of a mouthful. But if you can get that, it's it's one of the most fascinating reads. I read it in about two days. Um, she was talking about Pulitzer and how he was the coachman. He was the body barrier. He did all these kind of w- jobs to get himself up the rung. Um, eventually then started, uh, I think it was the New York World he started. But he was. he said he never forgot that he was the coachman. And he always could still be in touch with the real people and real people's concerns, real people's daily concerns, not whether or not the nuns run the National Maternity Hospital, not whether or not we have enough female professors, uh, you know, in Irish universities, uh, but things like, which, which, by the way, can I just say, I saw coming from January, the cost of living crisis. I saw it coming because I live in the city centre. I'm surrounded by immigrants whose number one issue is always economic, nothing else. That's their issue. How do I pay the rent? How do I earn more money? How do I get better rights and work? So I'm surrounded by all these people. As well as that, I'm a single parent. So I'm surrounded by single parents and their issues. The gas has gone up, the electric has gone up, blah, blah, blah. So, I, you know, you, they're not seeing things coming because they're not out amongst the people. And so you get the housing crisis, as we mentioned in the last episode, going on, rattling on from 2014. Journalists, by and large, completely unaware of the scale of it because yep. most of them had houses or decent incomes. So you're, you're missing all this kind of stuff. Like I remember um, during the abortion referendum, I remember seeing them all out in the street, uh, you know, cheering and saying, this is great. This was at the height of the housing crisis, 2018. And all I could think of was, what are they going to do when they realise they're never going to be able to buy a house? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like there was, there was uh, surely, I mean, that was a, a rights issue and all that, and it was historical, and that, great. But in the background, ahead of all this bread and circuses that were being thrown, there was this awful crisis that was going to come and absolutely overwhelm us like a tsunami. It was completely missed because they're not, most journalists are not in, living in, in the real world. They're all coming out of universities which I think is actually completely harmful to the trade. It's it's making it into a professional class. It's I always wonder when people say to me, I studied journalism for four years. And I honestly think, what did you do for the other three years, 11 and 11 months? Hmm. Because I could teach you in one month more than you would learn in the four years, sitting, studying how to be a journalist, get out there, knock on doors, talk to people who've suffered tragedy, talk to people who have case studies, interview people, listen, listening skills, um, be a mirror sift, for their stories. Yeah, sift fact from fiction. It doesn't take a university degree mm. to sift fact from fiction. Mm. That's, I mean, this, you know, exalting ourselves uh, into some other sphere has meant that we have abandoned the working class. 
you know, like it's, and then we have this totally conformist media where everybody agrees with each other because they've all been to university together, which, you know. Yes, okay, good. Have a certain uh, political viewpoint. Yes, they've all been in their bubble together and they're all working in the newspapers and they're all part of a professional class. Mm. But there's, there's another side to that as well, I think. And that is the, the, the consensus you talked about, right? Yeah. Of what all the newspapers are writing. And I think it was highlighted a lot during the pandemic as well, right? Yeah. So if you just move journalism into, let's say, the sphere of broadcasting and you kind of go like, well, how did RTE really, uh, yeah. for example, uh, broadcast during the pandemic? Well, how would you have broadcast during the pandemic if you had no money and the only money you're getting is from the government mm-hmm. for your COVID ads? Mm-hmm. And the government are very clear about the line they want to take. Mm-hmm. Really, how far are you going to deviate from that line when your bread and butter and literal job is being given to you by those people who will not be happy if you deviate from that line? Yeah. Would that be fair to say? I think it's an element, but I think it's actually much simpler than that. They've decided they decided that the right thinking people um, all had the one view and that anyone outside of that view was a bit mad. And, uh, you know, they were kind of head the balls if you, if you didn't agree with lockdown. But actually, it's very easy to not agree with to agree with lockdown. If you are like the three groups, I always say, who really benefited from mm. lockdown were press, pharmacy and politics. Mm. Like politicians have told me that they didn't even notice there was lockdown because yep. they were working away as usual. Yep. Press, I can tell you myself, I, I actually benefited benefited from it. My yep. career um, improved, uh, gained. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was more work. I was able to work on the radio five days a week, every day. Yeah. And then there are other people who are just getting that salary into their account, cha-ching-ching, ching, but they're working from home so they can collect the kids from school yep. and uh, they're kind of delighted with themselves. So it's, it's very easy to lecture people about, you know, you're a bit of a conspiracy theorist, mad nut, and you're not rowing in on, on the whole lockdown thing when you're still getting your salary into your account uh, every month yeah, and nothing is, nothing is really changing. So I, I, th- I think like journalists in particular, uh, because as well as that, they were getting this, the, not just the money, but they were getting the, the stimulation of work. I mean, we continued to work. It was, look, I absolutely hated it as is on, as is on record. But I think I was maybe the only one to be anti-lockdown. I don't think there was another journalist who was vocally anti-lockdown. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's not reflecting the, the, the views of society that's only reflecting the views of certain society certain comfortable society mm. you know so I mean in, in many ways journalism has become the preserve of the privileged mm. because to even get into it in the first place you need that university degree now I mean I wouldn't I don't think I'd get into journalism um, now mm. these days the, you, all the universities are tied up with the newspapers and you know the apprenticeships are given mm. on the basis of you know X goes to, takes uh, graduates from such a university and Y takes graduates from another university and for all their lecturing and preening and uh, crusading about identity politics and how you know we need to um, be more diverse and inclusive across society nobody says that actually our industry is the most um, excluding of a socioeconomic group. You know, you, you can't, it's it's not, uh, there's no culture of the working class anymore um, across journalism. I like to think that my own newspaper, The Irish Mirror, is actually an exception to that rule. And that's part of the reason I went to work there at the end of the year, of the end of last year, is because it really is, it, it continues to be, I'm not, it's, it's, I'm not just saying this because it's my newspaper, it, I genuinely, with integrity, went there for that reason. It's known as the paper of the, the you know, the left working class in, in Britain. And I think that we, 
continue that here. As I was saying, I started a cost of living campaign in January, working out how much this thing was going to cost you over the year. Four thousand euro, by the way. Carl Dieter worked it out for me, but um, the uh, the financial expert. But, um, you know, I try and bring up those issues that are real people issues. It doesn't matter whether I agree with them or not. The turf issue, for example, the banning of turf. I know that the real people, the normal people, the everyday people don't want turf banned overnight. This thing that's been there for as, as long as anyone can remember. But, you know, but it'd be very easy to kind of stand up and say, oh, well, this is the right, this is the right thing to be doing or whatever. But, you know, whether I agree with it or not is irrelevant. I know what... You have mm. to reflect what real people think. I'm not afraid to affect it too. Yeah. To, uh, uh, two questions there. Just to, uh, when uh, you were one of the only journalists that I can think of, anyway, that that had a had had a, at least a questioning uh, uh, attitude to lockdown, uh, mm. uh, especially to aspects of the lockdown that you felt were unnecessary at certain times. Yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, I think even you felt that there were certain times especially earlier on when the lockdown was absolutely necessary. Yes, I, I did. Thought. Um, and then I think your, your, your view would have been more nuanced in the sense that you would have believed that lockdown was unnecessary um, for a certain group of society at certain times, for large parts at certain times. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose it just we went on too long. It ended up just being a blunt instrument. You know, yeah. this is handy, it's worked. Yeah. Grand, did, you get any, um, uh, did you get any, any art eyebrows within your kind of own profession about that? Or, um, because if you didn't, that's good. Mm, no, I never would because listen, I'm so long doing this now that nobody, like I've, I've always seen it. Like I like to think I'm a critical thinker, you know, right? So I've always kind of researched the thing into the ground. And often if you look beyond what you're being instantly told, you, you will find that, you know, situation is a little bit different than maybe it's being pre- presented. Now, sometimes, you know, as I say, I was, I, I understood the reasons for lockdown at the start. I'm not disagreeing or being controversial for the sake of it. But like when you find something that you go, oh, actually, I've researched that and I've come to a conclusion that is completely at odds with the rest of what the media has agreed upon. In my view, it is your duty and not like some sort of brave, you know, um, you know, you're not leading, you're not like at the vanguard of, of, of brilliance or anything. It's just a basic of journalism that you have a responsibility then to articulate that and become maybe articulated for the people who felt it and thought, oh, yes, I think that. And I didn't really know why. And there's the reasons laid mm. out, mm. you know, so just um, I just felt that it was important to do. But but there's a couple of reasons why I think surely I wasn't the only one in in journalism, for example, to think that the overnight bringing in of masks for children 18 months into a pandemic was a terrible idea and an awful thing to do to kids. But yet I was the only one to say it. Now, I got got a lot of people criticising me for that for some reason. Couldn't understand that at all. And without going into too much psychology, I felt that maybe on some level they felt bad that they were just accepting of it on behalf of their kids and they didn't mm. like somebody else saying so it that it was... sort of reflected guilt. Well, I mean, I think so. It's the only thing that makes sense. You don't do anything to kids overnight. You don't say anything. You don't say the school tour is cancelled. You don't say, you know, the play is not on. Uh, the hours are changing. So you don't, equally, you don't do this. It's just as simple as that. And anybody with a backbone should have stood up for that. Mm. So I think... What's happened back to the Twitter thing and the university thing? I think the reason why, like, I remember when I went to work for the Sunday Indo, Sunday Independent years ago, Angus Fanning was the editor, wonderful character, and in my view, a brilliant editor. And he was delighted to come across me because he said that everything I did was just, I was about the truth, which is at the essence of journalism. He said, You're just honest and you'd be about the truth. So, he was like, keep on going. And I, I like, I remember once I wrote about something it was to do with the contraceptive pill. I was asking, 
is this really a good idea for women? Because we're actually taking in, you know, fake hormones to change what our bodies do. So is it really a, some sort of feminist, you know, act or why aren't men doing it kind of thing? So, of course, that had a huge reaction. Um, and we got bags of mail because that's what used to happen pre-Twitter. And I remember seeing the bags go by and going, oh, God, there's another bag of mail. Jesus, I'm going to be I'm going to be fired. And he said, no, we're delighted to see the bags of mail. He said, I said, but sure, maybe most of them won't agree with me. He said, I don't care whether they agree or disagree. The point in a democracy is debate and it's different viewpoints and it's reaction. So I was told that and that was rewarded in my newspaper. It was rewarded to do your research, find out your facts, come to your conclusion and don't be afraid to present it. Don't be afraid to be disapproved of and to do that. But I don't think that's happening now. I would imagine, I think in Twitter, for example, in the Twitter world, people are uh, too invested in what other people will say about on Twitter. They're afraid that they'll get cancelled. I think equally, editors not aren't necessarily um, encouraging that because they know that a, a load of shit may come down upon their heads and they don't want to have to deal with it. So I think um, maybe do, it's do not, not rewarded anymore. Yeah, and do you not think, just on that again, and getting back to a similar point, but one of the reasons, let's say, editors aren't invested in it is so much, are they, is there too much is there too much um, behovenness to corporate interests just to keep the paper going? Do you know well, what I mean? I mean yeah, well, in other I mean, words, are, are, are papers... Advertising. Yeah, and, yeah. Are, and are papers truly getting less and, more independent, less and less independent, if you know what I mean? Yeah, and I know. Look, there is, that is definitely a factor. Um, and advertising is huge. Like, so, like, you know, they always want to get that, um, they always want to get that, that uh, I think it's called the ABC one. I was always kind of confused yes. by that thing. But they always want to get that higher market because that's where you get the advertisers for the, the engagement rings and the, the travel holidays. And, you know, it's all the, the people with extra money. They want the people with the more money, you know? Let's say your newspaper <laughs> is sponsored by Coca-Cola. And you have five Larissa Nolans going anti-lockdown. And Coca-Cola is just going, lads, we're all locking down here. What's yeah. Larissa doing? They won't actually explicitly say that. Mm. But the readership you'd be going after with that anti-lockdown uh, message may not be the, the readership, the eyes that they want to see on their advertisement. Mm. So it's all about getting the right eyes mm. on the right advertisement. So they might say, oh, well, we don't believe, don't, they won't actually say it. But it'll, it's just the eyes may not go there. So, I, I mean, I just think that, I like, tell you what, if, if, if I'm to think of ways, like solutions to this kind of stranglehold on the one view that we have, that we see in, in media, it's it's come off Twitter. I, I really think it's it's that, like stop being enthralled to Twitter as, you know, that brilliant writer in, in New York, uh, the New York um, Times said, Barry Weiss, she was saying Twitter has become the ultimate editor. Um, get away from that. Stop that. That's only a small percentage of people. It's not actually the real world. Get out in the real world. Talk to real people. Um, but but also I would, I would, if I was, if I, if I was ever in an editor's chair, the first thing I would do is I'd remove this hookup between universities and, and newspapers to train journalists. You, you don't need a university degree. Like somebody coming in to me and showing me a couple of stories they'd done for their local newspaper or an absolutely brilliant interview. You know, like you're not supposed to mention anyone from Fox News anymore, but Roger Ailes, who was the controversial chief of, of Fox News, he had a brilliant one. He was saying that he would anyone from a big top journalist university would be a hard sell for him. And he said that he'd much prefer the state school kids coming in because he said he noticed that they were not entitled. They had a great work ethic, a desire to win. And this is key, a practical intelligence. 
So, you know, I mean, I think all of those things, you, you, can, you can go to university as long as you like. You're never going to get those things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's the first thing I d- would do because I think we can't lecture and be the, be the group who go on about equality and make ourselves feel good in that regard, while at the same time sort of perpetuating a system whereby you're not getting that working class voice. You're not getting that visibility. We, we really need to, make, to do more to get that into the newspapers. Okay, Larissa, thank you very much for coming in and uh, talking to me last week. Um, about housing and this week about journalism. I always find your comments extremely interesting. And um, do more commentary on... I know you're editing all the time. Yes. Do more comment pieces. Well, hopefully, I, hopefully uh, I'll, I'll do some of my commentary through my editing, even though I'm not supposed to say that. But uh, yeah, well, hopefully with the, the issues that I raise, I would like to think are the issues that I find important. Thanks, Larissa. <laughs> Thanks again to Larissa Nolan. Always a great guest. Check out the comedy special, as I indicated. We published just before this one. All of our favourite comedy sketches clumped together in one blockbuster summer special. Back next week. Music